0: Quick test. Can you hear me, Doug?
1: Yes, sir. Thanks. All right. Thank you, everybody, for joining. Masari Happy Hour, Episode Six. Hopefully we can pump a little bit of hopium into your veins today with some innovation talk. Uh, before we start, a quick disclaimer. All opinions expressed by our hosts and our guests are merely their own opinions. They do not reflect any endorsements or opinions of their companies. This discussion is meant for informational purposes only. You should not take their opinions as investment advice as you will be solely responsible
0: for did you
1: your... Uh, <laughs> You'll be solely responsible for your own investment. Hosts and guests may hold cryptocurrencies discussed in this Twitter spaces. Additionally, certain Masari employees are required to disclose their holdings, which is updated monthly and available at our website here. I'll share a tweet with our disclosures, and then I'm going to share Tom's thread from this morning, kind of a bear market retrospective that shifts into um, some innovations that we may see moving forward.
0: Great. Thanks, Doug. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Um, welcome to Masari Happy Hour. Hopefully, everyone's grabbed a drink because we have some uh, bear market talk here and hopefully pivoting that into some optimism. So we'll start off by doing a uh, quick just retrospective of previous bear markets, some innovations we got out of that, and then pivot our discussion into some of the things we can hopefully see out of this bear market. So all the way back in 2011, we had the first Bitcoin bear market. That was a 90 percent drawdown. Um, not much to get out of that one, besides a few mentions by Gawker and Time and PC World, and really that was the first introduction of Bitcoin into the popular zeitgeist. But nothing really out of that one. And the real cause of the drawdown at that point was just speculation on a really thinly traded exchange. Um, so not too many lessons out of that one, but. The next one, 2012 bear market, we had a few 30% drawdowns across the year. Uh, That bear market and the bear market in 2013, 14, a lot of those were due to hacks, uh, major exchanges, so not only Mt. Gox, but um, sort of a few others that were there at the time. That brought about Trezor, Ledger, some hard wallets. um, As these folks were holding things on on hot wallets, uh, exchanges were, which is Obviously, not a best practice, but we also had Kraken, Coinbase, um, and others sort of join the fray after those bear markets. Um, 2014-15 was was the big hack of Mt. Gox, and that was the biggest exchange at the time, trading most of the Bitcoin volume. Uh, We also had a China ban at that time, the first ban of Bitcoin by China, uh, if we can remember back that far. Um, and out of those 2014-15 bear markets, obviously we had a fear.
1: Tom, we lost you. Can you, can you still hear me? Yep, we got you.
0: Oh, sorry. Um, so 2014-15, and 15, we had multiple sort of 75% drawdowns. Um, you know, we out of that bear cycle, we had Ethereum, Lightning, stablecoins, DAOs, um, perpetual swaps, a ton of innovations really as sort of crypto entered the popular, uh, popular zeitgeist. Um, you know, speed running to really 2017, 2018 bear markets, uh, another layer of innovation here. Um, 2017 bear market was caused by the ICO mania. Spot Spot Bitcoin ETF denial, again, for the first time, and then some crackdowns for U.S. and China regulations. Um, Out of that bear market, we got a ton of innovation. Not only, you know, some successful ICOs like Polkadot, Filecoin, Tezos, um, and the like, but we also got Maker, Chainlink, Aave, a lot of infrastructure investments that we're going to set up that next uh, next wave of DeFi and that DeFi summer. Um, and we also got OpenSea and kind of the first NFTs and CryptoKitties um, and the like. So as you can see at the end, each bear market sort of breeding a new layer of innovation that we build upon for the next cycle. Um, 2018 and 2020 bear markets um, were really caused mostly by sort of macro. And um, out, of those, out of those bear markets, we got L2s, so Optimism, Arbitrum, ZK Sync. Starkware and alt L ones like Solana, Avalanche. Um, also, with some innovations like liquidity mining, flash loans, and things like that. So, bringing back, bring us all the way to today. You know, we have the two thousand twenty two bear market, and we have, um, you know, this cycle's issues were caused by not only opaque lending institutions, but over leveraged pre- players, sort of rehypothecating capital, um, and sort of uh you know, issues not only in that market, but sort of stable coins and how stable coins and the like. So, you know, what sort of lessons and innovations do we think we can draw from this and kind of extrapolate forward for this next cycle and where we think we can have some potential investable opportunities moving forward? Uh, a few ideas we've kicked around, you know, GameFi, decentralized social, streaming, uh, you know, mobile payments and the like, but Love to open it up to the rest of the team here to see what their thoughts are and what we can kind of gain from this cycle as we look to the next um, potential upcycle in the future.
2: Yeah, I'll kind of hop in with with one of the things that's excited me the most recently. So uh, for a little bit of background on myself, I'm a data engineer here at Masari. So, you know, we put out like a, a lot of reports and, and I try to piece together the data and, and do protocol research on, on some them and stuff like that. One of the recent reports we just put out actually was a quarterly on LivePeer. I was like looking into their mechanism, reading their docs, trying to get some data. And they have this like really, really clever method behind like payment streaming. And I had always kind of known this was a thing until I had really dug into it, where essentially to escape the high gas of Ethereum, they do insert cryptology, math, and probabilistic kind of stuff here. But they basically reward. Transcoders you know, who transcode video back and forth, they reward them with like stacks of increasing probability that you can cash in a lottery ticket for your reward. So basically, the, the transcoders do all this video transcoding, and all this cryptographic signing happens off-chain, 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 that allows them to stack up probabilities, and then they cash that in so they can essentially receive the payment at any moment that they want llama Pay is another service for like payment streaming and all that some of them are tokenized some of them are nfts they they all kind of manifest in a different way because we haven't quite figured it out yet but really once you start to read these things and and how clever they truly are it, it becomes very 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 cool to see that like we're about to like tokenize cash flows right like if you think of the let's tokenize everything let's create digital assets that have value Let's tokenize car leases and equities as NFTs. Let's, let's tokenize all the assets. Well, a tokenized cash flow is a bond. So I think like, you know, you look at the traditional market, bonds are a far, far bigger deal than, um, than equities, right? People care a lot more about cash flow and valuing that cash flow at any moment in time than they do, you know, bonds or, or, or equities, right? So it's, it's one of the things that I'm super, super excited about.
3: I'm, I'm also like super interested in the cash flow side of things. Like just to back up for a second, it's like, like you mentioned real world stuff, you've got, you know, digital assets and like, digital assets are really NFTs, right? So, you know, kind of to Tom's point where we have these cycles where we go, all right, bull market run, we build all these apps and then we go bear market, build this infrastructure. So like a lot of times the stuff we get really excited about is kind of like the future vision of, of what we can do with the technology. Once we kind of get that understanding of it, it's like, oh man, we can build all these really cool things. You know, in that 2017, 2018 run, it was like, oh, we can do these DAOs, we can do DeFi. But we're too early, right? You didn't have all the infrastructure. And I think NFTs are a very nice, like, almost similar boat that DeFi and kind of almost smart contract platforms were back then. Um, so once you get, like, you know, NFTs that are these digital objects, and now we've got sort of decentralized social and some other, like, OpenSea, kind of, like, building a lot of NFT sort of infrastructure right now. Not just, like, profile picture, but, like, just digital content period whether it's live stream, etc um you start putting cash flows tied to all this stuff you've now got like a really tight inter- like let's just call it financial ecosystem to where like now you know before like we, defi was kind of like mostly propelled by like let's just be frank right speculation but you start getting like actual cash flows like tied to real business opportunities like that's when you can really start to actually create uh, a real financial ecosystem that can like really sustain by itself. And that's like something I think uh, that we're going to see a lot of building around, like, particularly like in my perspective around, you know, social and kind of like these on-chain purely digital businesses. Um, and that's sort of a thing. I think you start getting a fully self-propagating systems, let's say, um, around, you know, digital content. And, and a core, core piece of that is being able to tokenize, cash flows and, and look forward and bring some future uh power, you know, financial stuff forward.
1: You're muted, Chase. Thanks. Sorry, I was was unmuted
4: on the wrong one. Um I, I just wanna propose a little follow-up to you, Dustin. So you guys know that I'm huge onto this thesis of like on-chain cash flows, tokenizing future revenues. Um but I'm curious how you think the market and um, economy on chain will respond to um, the risk that comes with that as well. What if like someone doesn't do their work that um, is supposed to be delivered in order to secure this future payment? Um, do you see an entire underwriting area springing up to handle that? Do you think it's just naturally priced into? Like all the rates, how do you see the rates being set in the first place?
2: Yeah, this is is where things get really, really, really exciting for me. And I'm going to, I'll lead everything I'm about to say with like a a pretty big disclaimer. I'm going to kind of talk about like very far off, far future ideas. Like I think once this all comes together, like crypto has won, the world has like changed right? Like I'm going to use like big numbers relating to like market cap and value and all that. That's just to prove my point of like how important this stuff is. So again, like ignore the numbers. I'm just giving out big ones to make a point point. and timeframe is longer than you are patient, but everything <laughs> plugs together, right? Like you've now tokenized all the assets in the world. You've got digital native assets, like an Ave token or something like that, that have digital native value. Somebody cracked the case, and they figured out how to tokenize real-world assets. Sweet. We figured out payment streaming, and now we've tokenized all of these bonds, essentially, and all of these cash flows. Awesome. We plugged it into some crazy combination of Curve, Uniswap, Dex, Lending, whatever, and now you've created the hyper-efficient DeFi matrix, I'm I'm referencing another Masari piece by Chase DeFi, the Invisible Revolution here, but essentially DeFi enables us to create the economic relationships between all of these tokenized assets and all of these tokenized cash flows. Now to Chase's point, decentralized social becomes the coordination layer on top of this, right? The same way we unlocked value in DeFi by plugging Yearn into Compound and plugging Alchemics into yearn to create a new primitive, like a loan that pays itself off. Imagine the value unlock when you've plugged in decentralized social, which is at its top level, just a highly advanced, like algorithmic, like modular coordination layer. Imagine when you interoperate and plug that onto DeFi. You have now created, it's referred to as like the hyperstructure, right? You've now created a mechanism where there's a one-to-one deterministic correlation between social coordination and financial assets of literally everything you can possibly imagine, right? Like this, this is actually the, the holy grail of economics, the holy grail of efficient market allocation. This, this, is, this is like actually a huge deal. This, this is how crypto gets to a quadrillion dollars, is you tokenize everything, and you create the single most efficient economic machine in in the history of the species.
0: So what you're saying is really actually linking DeFi and on-chain reputation systems so that you can finally disintermediate all of those rent-seeking middlemen and together the Lego building blocks that have been coming together for so long. And I think that... That makes sense, right? One of the biggest problems with this whole cycle and one of the reasons that we went down is, you know, lending standards are subpar, there were systematic risk, you don't understand. So how do you how do you get around that? I mean, we had a lot of these institutions that were essentially doing bilateral kind of backroom deals and were really just doing traditional finance with the veneer of DeFi. You get around that by on-chain reputation systems, on-chain resumes, more smart, more contract-based lending, and you know, soulbound NFTs. All those decentralized social sort of potential concepts that can link with DeFi and make these things programmatic, algori- algor- algorithmic, and really, um, you know, take out the layer of middlemen that we're sort of fighting with today.
2: Yeah, I think of those- Think of how insane that connection is, though, because, like, let's, let's talk about Wall Street Bets as an example here. Wall Street Bets popped off, GME mooned, and then all of a sudden a bunch of hedge funds were like, oh, we, we should, like, probably trade this, right? So basically what they do is they run machine learning and sentiment analysis on Wall Street Bets, they run it in their system, and then they execute trades based on sentiment. That's three different systems. Reddit operates in a closed box system. The hedge funds and the traders have their own closed box system where they read Reddit and process the information and then they plug in with API calls or whatnots in the closed box system of how do we trade stocks and equities. When you merge like decentralized social and DeFi, it's the same system. There is no intermediary. The information exists in the same ecosystem. So one, you've already removed all of those points of friction. And then two, because the innovation of DeFi allows you to do atomic actions, right? Like I can take out a multi-billion dollar flash loan and return it in the same thing because it's a deterministic moment of time. Like the time of a flash loan is literally zero. It's a a loan with the duration of zero. So once you in-house all of these things into the same ecosystem, you can now arbitrage all of the information in the world at discrete timestamps of zero, using all of the economic mass of the world. Like right now, like these hedge funds have to trade against a line of credit, but if they could do flash loans to trade and close all these arbitrages or, or swing sentiment trade, they have an infinite line of credit. So imagine plugging the entire world of information and sentiment into the entire world of every financial asset in the world and atomically being able to swap multiple billions of dollars in an instant with zero collateral risk. This is like the numbers are extreme here. This is how you create the most efficient capital allocation machine. Fathomable. People don't see the value unlock is when you plug all of it together.
0: Mike, do you think that increases volatility?
2: Uh, Dude, I have no clue just just absolutely realistically i have no clue what the real human effects of this are because you you're talking about cash flow analysis on people you're talking about like if i look at a a business like apple imagine if i just gave if i only cared about the airpods revenue stream every single revenue stream by apple is now tokenized so i'm long airpods revenue stream i'm short apple fitness revenue stream I'm long, like Doug's Twitter followers, I'm short my Twitter followers or whatever, you know, you're talking about like spreads and arbitrage and sentiment analysis on trading on on literally everything because you can take discrete units, like how many, if you look at the smart contract code for USDC, what, there's like 18 or 12 decimal places? Can, can you fathom like, like arbitrages of, again, multiple billions, now let's say crypto is in the quadrillions, you're talking about trillions of dollars of arbitrage to hit pennies. Micro, micro, micro pennies. Pennies on ten to the minus twelve. So you, you, I don't know if this is the most volatile thing I can possibly imagine or the most smooth thing I can possibly imagine. But the value unlock is, is unfathomable, which is why I'm using these extreme numbers, just to show that like it is insane.
4: I, I would make the case for it being less volatile um, because you, I mean, the way you're describing this, we're basically automating just about everything under the sun. Um, we already see that Uniswap bots take up, what, like 75, 75% of trading activity on Uniswap during like bear market times. Um, there's gonna be no shortage of, of bot code running around. And like, I would imagine that that's ultimately what replaces these hedge funds. You're gonna see um, like a hundred person hedge fund get boiled down to like two dudes in the basement writing code. Um, and you know, it, it's all gonna look completely different. Um, but that being said, like you have 24 seven, always on computer code executing against this stuff, arbitraging stuff. And any any price gaps and differences should get swallowed up pretty quickly. Although I do think that major, uh, like substantial information moves, will continue to move the market uh, in significant ways because you know everyone has access now. Everyone can take action, and it's a lot less of um, kind of like the information lag that we see in traditional markets.
3: I feel like though we need to know walk back some hopium here though, right? Because we're we're talking quadrillion, we're like around what, a trillion or something from a market cap perspective. So we got a lot of points in between here and now or there. Um you know, in, in like it's it's another thing to get to like when you're talking Mike, you're like all these real world assets, everything under the sun tokenized, right? like everything that's in the real world like still kind of needs like you know, a government to sort of like enforce laws in between people and stuff coordinating because there's no way on chain that you can say like you know what Dustin owns this car or whatever. Um, so like, there's there's certain aspects that we got to sort of think about this like from a practical standpoint of like how do we get from you know where we are now and in you know to Mike's grand vision everything under the suns tokenized, and a lot of that's going to have to start with like you know purely digital first um, stuff. Like you know, let's call it businesses to be fancy, but really that's kind of just like. You know, someone on TikTok posting—they've got a following and they've got super followers and stuff like this. This is where, like, we're probably going to see, in my perspective, uh, you know, sort of in that next bull run phase where we start to see, like, you know, not not the apples of the world—you're not betting on AirPod revenue streams because those people are always going to have that centralized lender. Because look, I know, you know, Tim Cook, and I can make loans to him. Like, I don't need on-chain stuff for this. But for that bottom half of the world. Uh, where you don't know who Mike is, you don't know who Tom is, etc. Like that's where the on-chain reputation, that's where that stuff really shines. And I can see, you know, like Mike's famous OnlyFans, like how many followers he's got. Um, and and I can I can backflow those cash flows, and I can give them loans, all based off of this. This is how you like unlock essentially, um, you know, that economic layer, that financialization of um uh, the lower half of the population we don't really need like you know all this on-chain stuff for that huge like the apples of the world all these big players because you're always going to have that you know in real life call it relationships to to base stuff off of so you know practically looking right it's to me it's purely digital stuff kind of like fully contained um whether it's social whether it's you know god forbid game fi or something like that uh of just like purely on-chain cash flows that we're looking at and this is where payment streaming and stuff like that comes into play in my opinion
2: So I I totally agree with you, one, on the, like, again, super far out. There's, like, an insane amount of work that needs to be done to get there. There's, like, the same way people had to learn how to use the internet before they became, like, internet creators and built out all this content and all this stuff. Like, people need to upskill and learn and adapt. Like, we're we're a far ways away. Like, a lot of things need to happen. A ton of blood, sweat, and tears needs to be put into all of this. But maybe a slight cop-out answer here, but, like, In theory, this is what like the decentralized social layer solves for, right? What I believe the true purpose of decentralized social will be like all, you know, imagine Twitter's on there Reddit's on there and you plug all these information systems into the financial layer like expected. But the real value add there will be in discount factors for real world actions, right? Essentially, like if I have a mortgage on chain, decentralized social is the mechanism that creates the discount factor of not only does this person pay their mortgage, but does the literal, like, does the truck driver show up on time to deliver the corn to this guy's warehouse that he sells? And if the corn isn't delivering to the warehouse, he might be out of a job, you know, like, and, and that's the thing. Like if you underwrite risk wrongly, you get punished. Right. And like, that doesn't go away, right? Like we don't create an ecosystem where people lose money and get liquidated and, don't get the money that they thought they should have got because they either didn't underwrite the risk properly themselves or the agency, right, like the DAP, the decentralized social DAP, that's supposed to underwrite these risks, their model was wrong. So So, I think right now we underwrite financial risk. What's the risk of this company not paying their bond? I I think it comes on chain in the decentralized social layer, but it's slightly reimagined to how do we discount real world risk and the most profitable entities or, or some entities in decentralized social who make profits will be those who can effectively model this risk. And you can see their performance, right? Like look at 2008, we saw Fannie and Freddie and all the home rating agencies. They did a God awful job. They messed up. They, every single person in the, I'm sorry if anyone you know has emotional ties there, but like they all should have been fired and not nationalized and stuff like that. Right? Like, because of the on-chain mechanisms and stuff like that, we now have the rights to, like, stop using price feeds and risk factors from unqualified entities, right? This is the Mike, list. Everybody has to compete, all of that. Mike, Mike, can I put in
4: with a question yeah. uh, to follow up here? How, how do you think you handle the aspect of um, human reporting on all of these real world things? How do you get past the, the idea that someone needs to confirm that, you know, the truck didn't show up at nine o'clock, it showed up at ten forty-five? 45. Um, are we all just gonna be running chain link oracles in our basements? Um, do you see that as being like a significant obstacle to like actually having real world assets move on chain and this even being feasible? Cause like I'm totally bought in on all of the Uh, digitally native stuff like if cash flows are already happening on chain like yes that all makes perfect sense but um, as soon as we introduce like the real world aspect of it it gets a lot harder and it's been something i've been thinking about lately
2: yeah so I, i to be honest with you i don't have like the answer i think like the answer to that question is is something that needs to be invented right like we're starting to see all the pieces come together that doesn't mean every piece we need to make this happen has been invented we still need to scale I'll restress again, this is all a long ways away and a lot of smart people need to make this happen <laughs> and I'm not smart enough to be the one driving all of this. That said, you know, just to shell out like a, an example of the mindset, like with a ledger, you can hack a ledger, right? Like you can chip, you can layer by layer peel away like very, very micro trace the top part of a chip of a ledger and you can see like encoded, you can see the private key. The only thing is it takes millions of dollars to run the machinery to do this. So the thesis, same way with, you know, Bitcoin mining, where if you have enough hash power to hack the network, it's probably just more profitable to be a miner, right? The same way with ledger. If you have enough money to like hack a ledger, but there's not that much money on the ledger, it's not worth it. We have to get very clever about those kinds of mechanisms. So there are already some very small real world examples of, creating the economic structures and, like, the game theory structures and the incentive structures that do encourage a set of real-world behaviors. So I, I believe it's a problem that can be solved, but I, I do absolutely agree it is a problem that needs to be solved.
0: This brings up another interesting point. You're, you're talking about sort of, Very minute levels of detail of people's lives and their businesses. Are folks going to be okay with providing that level of detail? Is that something that in the future you're just going to have to do as a necessity to getting a loan? Or is it, you know, more I'm just going to over collateralize, go to ABE and take out what I need to take out? Or is it, you know, sort of use case by use case?
2: Yeah, the the sad reality is is there won't be a choice, right? Like the same way if you want to be like an active, like highly economically viable member of today's society, you kind of have to be online, right? Like you can't, you're not going to make millions. I struggle to see how someone could make millions and millions of dollars in today's world without being an internet user, right? I struggle to see how... You know i expect so many advantages to be unlocked by all of these on-chain behaviors on-chain assets that it's just economically unten- can you guys hear me oh yeah okay sorry i just think i just think it's going to be like economically untenable to like not participate on chain you know I, I i think like same way you know dustin you said earlier that apple might not this doesn't make sense to apple Well, when there's some small companies that are using capital thousands of times more efficient than Apple, but Apple can only get 10 times the capital through the current leverage system, right, they have to make the switch to compete. Like if you don't make the switch, you'll get competed away. Also, more bad news for everybody just to prove the point again. As soon as they start sticking chips in people's brains, you know, if you don't have a chip in your brain, good luck, right? Like it's that same kind of mindset, right? Like your hand is forced. So sad reality, but I don't
0: think anyone will have a choice. All right. Once we get to link talk, I think it's time to go to the next topic, unless Elon Musk is on here. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's, it's worth at least touching on macro in general, not to, uh, not to feed the beast here in terms of, uh, you know, getting everyone down in a bear market. But, um, you know, for me, I recently released a piece on why I think a um, bunch further down to go. So, you know, just, just really want to rehash some of those thoughts and you guys can push back on me and tell me why we're going straight up from here. But, um, you know, right now, I think, you know, just steel manning it. It's all about inflation. Um, you know, I think inflation is going to come back in the back half, come down in the back half of the year. But the Fed can only control inflation for housing, airlines, used cars, shit, uh, stuff, sorry, stuff that is uh, affected by interest rates that's still going to come down, but it's going to take some time and definitely going to take some time to put into sort of the numbers that we're going to see and the Fed's going to see to actually reduce um, policy. And we're not going to see those numbers until likely October, November of this year. Uh, and they just said in a recent meeting yesterday, they are ready to go even more tight if conditions don't loosen up um, in terms of inflation. So we have that on the table. We also have on the table that employment's fine, wages are fine. There's a ton of jobs out there. So, the Fed is happy to tighten and bring down the equity markets, bring down the crypto markets. As long as people are still working, as long as you know credit markets are behaving, which they are, um, you know, the Fed's just gonna keep tightening throughout throughout the summer. So, you know, I think the same way we listened to the Fed on the way up when they were providing liquidity, we also have to listen to the Fed on the way down. If they're going to tighten for the rest of the year, it's going to be really hard for risk assets to do well. And if you look at equities, you could say, great, we're at like historical averages on equities, but, um, you know, that's only if you believe earnings and other things are going to continue to be positive for the rest of the year. And historically, earnings estimates have been really bad around recessions, really bad around downturns, which we're in right now, or close to. Uh, And if you look at the numbers, sort of, in terms of what these projections are, they're way above average and they're likely to be sort of revised down throughout the summer. So I think we're in for a tough time throughout the summer. Earnings are going to be tough. Fed's against us. And, you know, I personally am happy to hold stable coins about that. It doesn't change any of my conviction long-term in crypto, but crypto is still a correlated risk asset. And we're going to have a lot of Um, Sort of trouble bucking that trend going forward. So, I'd love to hear what other folks think about that. Any pushback or any thoughts on what could be a bright spot in the in the next few months?
4: I think I I hold the same kind of like bearish short term outlook as you, Tom. Um, I think the you know much of the down market that we've seen since the start of the year has really just been driven by a lot of leverage, unwinding um, and kind of a return to the mean for what's the, the fundamental evolution of crypto. Um, but I think that overall, like traditional macro has yet to really have any structural breaks. And when that happens, you know, like you don't want to be holding, um, you don't want to be the last one holding the bag really. And, you know, it's, Ultimately, just not looking too pretty in the short term. But again, like there's a reason we all choose to work in this industry. Uh, the the long term is brighter than ever, and you know it, it makes me happy that we can continue to you know be able to buy it at lower prices for some time as well.
3: Yeah, I think it's. I mean, it's obviously all a function of liquidity, right? So, like the you know, as Fed's pumping in dollars, everything's going up everybody's having fun uh the second you start pulling that out you know guess what happens right it goes down um and you know i think all of us on on this right are probably expecting roughly the same thing to continue playing out as we kind of you know continue the fed uh tightening schedule and everything like that but um like the the core piece that i still hold is i I do kind of think crypto is the first to kind of start bouncing up right i think that's where you're going to start to see the most excitement you know particularly from the retail because like you know, as people start kind of steadying out and they're like, okay, this is stuff we're getting excited about. Um, I do think crypto is just going to move a little bit faster, in my opinion. Um, you know, particularly as they like, you know, like we've, we've kind of showed a lot of, you know, kind of decentralized social, payment streaming, stuff like that earlier here. Um, I think once our people start seeing really what can be unlocked, with like, you will know, just call it decentralized social, like, you know, be able to have your TikTok and be able to make money from this stuff. You know, if they're in a recession and you're like, you're looking for ways to make money and then, you know, your your college kids or whoever, they're making money on TikTok. I mean, you know, people are gonna start looking at that and saying like, hey, you know what, that's actually a very viable way. And then, you know, if we start seeing like some very sophisticated payment streaming and, and ways to pull revenue forward and like some very like sophisticated sort of uh, DeFi aspects around this stuff, I think that's something that people can get very excited about, you know, before I think uh liquidity is going to push us up regardless. You know what I'm saying? So I do think there's sort of this decoupling esque um you know thesis to play out here That's purely like kind of bottoms up retail driven uh all kind of more around the excitement of the technology versus um more of a liquidity function which we've had over the last decade or so
2: does anybody want to tackle the like really really wide out look at this state of the world the giga bear case
4: because I'll, I'll, I'll have added a, a touch here. We, like, we know uh, you are the expert on it, Mike. No.
2: I'm LARPing uh, unfathomably hard about this. Uh, a lot of these opinions are a stitch of like Mike Green, who I think people should check out, Peter Zihan, people should check out, like Lynn Alden, Luke Groman, like that whole you know class of like, macro heads, basically. Ch- check them all out and try to stitch it together. But I think one of the lessons crypto taught me is that like reflexivity goes both ways, right? Like Ohm designs a super reflexive token model. Dude, it is lit. It is fun on the upside. It is a lot less fun on the downside. This is essentially what globalization is, right? When you do a little bit of globalization, you unlock efficiencies, right? Those efficiencies free up capital in the system that newly freed capital can be invested into other areas where you can meet the scale of capital needed to unlock more efficiencies to unlock more capital and so forth and so forth and so forth and you spin this flywheel until all of a sudden you're printing computer chips at like 3 nanometer 5 nanometer like atomic scales right that that doesn't happen with an ex- without an extreme amount of efficiencies unlocked in the system right when you de-spin globalization, right? When you cut Russia from the global system, when China goes into lockdowns, when you see these geopolitical tensions happening, when you see like a lot of the tragedies happening in these emerging markets relating to food and energy, all you're doing is unspinning these efficiencies, but that's gonna double down hurt to to the downside, right? Now you've lost this efficiency which means you need to over-allocate capital to this issue because you're not as efficient anymore, which means you need to deallocate capital from this other efficiency, which means you're not doing this process as well anymore. So I think there is a true bear scenario here where you're just losing the capital. Yeah, I think people need to separate from the finances here. These aren't numbers on a screen. Like Apple is a real company that sells real product. Right, like wheat futures are, are, are real wheat, right? Like, like, these things need to happen for, for these things to move. So it's, it's not like, oh, the, the price goes up, right? Like, shortages are, are price irreverent, right? Inelastic goods like food and energy are price irreverent. The, the bid for these kinds of assets isn't, oh, price goes up and then yield goes up and then efficiency. The bid for these kinds of assets is, literally whatever you can muster together as a society, right? So if you start to unspin this global system, all you're doing is destroying capital, right? So now you've hit the point where it's just mass capital destruction, and all of these central banks are just playing a pseudo-shell game. Oh, I can't wait for the Fed to tighten so hard that they have to ease. And then once they ease super hard, they're going to have to tighten. Right. This only works under the framework of the most globalized, interconnected, value unlocked society. Again, in the history of our species, right? Like we've peaked globalization here, and that's moving in reverse. You you couldn't ruin that, right? Like if the world was globalizing, and you could print dollars and just trade it for whatever goods and trinkets you wanted from whatever far off region of the world, you're cheating. You're on easy mode. Easy mode is coming to an end here, right? You, I, I think you could get to a scenario where if the Fed tightens, it actually doesn't change anything, right? Because I am, I'm buying gas. I'm buying wheat and cereal, whether rates are at 3% or 7,000%. I'm, I'm a big fan of feeding my body calories, right? I imagine most people are too, right? And then it, But now the psychology has moved against you where if you ease – people are going to see the break of the system, right? Because it's a confidence shell game when you're dealing with fiats and you're now in an inflationary environment, right? So you can't ease, you can't tighten and capital is being destroyed like crazy, right? I'll, I'll save all of my conspiracy theories for what comes next. You know, I'll cut myself off here. But like you could actually just be in a, in a real bear where we've only tricked ourselves into thinking the Fed matters. And it's, it's really fun to watch the market trade this stuff but if you look at the volatility, obviously, they don't know what they're doing. Obviously, they're doing a bad job of pricing things in.
3: So my perspective is, one, I, I think we always kind of sort of overreact in a sense, like not, not saying, like, it, I agree with, like, the whole thesis. But my, my core question is, like, what your timeline for you think this all plays out? Like, is this something that happens over the next couple months? Is this something that happens over the next decade? Like, because I think, you know, like, historically looking – I, I know society moves faster nowadays, but like, you know, it takes kind of decades, you know, like in history class, it's cute to read like, okay, 1933, we did something when we were Germany, but like, you know, 1940 was where you got World War II, right? So like there's, there's sometimes long periods of time before you get to like kind of that big climatic moment from once you kind of realize the destabilization. So like sometimes these systems can sort of stay in the destabilized state for a little bit longer than you would maybe anticipate. So like kind of my question is what what sort of timeline are you assessing uh sort of this sort of kind of your thesis playing out.
2: Yeah, as far as timeline goes, I'll I'll just say like not right now, right? Like I think there's a lot of games left to be played. Uh you know, I I I very cockily think I'm a little ahead on the understanding curve of a lot of people here and and it's another thing we're just because the Fiat game is a psychology game because the markets is a psychology game. Like we've turned it all into a meme, let's be real right? Like it just takes time for that meme to infiltrate people's heads. It takes time for like shipping containers to not show up. It takes time for crops to not get harvested, right? So I I think it takes time. I think if you're like betting against what has been the trend of globalization, which is a slow moving March, then you know, it's probably a slow moving March in reverse until some cliff type scenario or or some collapse type scenario. But I think I'll, I'll just make one more point to kind of challenge the people thinking here mean reversion is like very, very idyllic, right? When you like look at like your financial advisors or something like that and they're like, oh, stocks have gone up seven, nine, 10% a year, whatever tax adjust you wanna use, whatever inflation adjust you wanna use for the last 100 years, you're all good. Oh, we've been globalizing since I was born, we're all good. That's like a very, very cherry picked time frame, right? Like that's mean reversion to the 80 years. If you want to do a really big mean reversion, over the last 2,000 years, the mean reversion is starvation, serfdom, global conflict, and, 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 and abject poverty and suffering, right? If you're looking at the mean reversion of the human condition. That's not what I'm calling for, but I'm just saying that like, everybody is mean reverting to the greatest bull market in our lifetimes. And to me, it seems like you would mean revert away from this insane bull market.
0: The last eight-year period, Mike, has been the period of central banking, right? Yeah. I mean, well, whether you want to
2: consider it central banking or globalization or whatever, like I, I like, again, like, I don't think the central banks matter on a macro, macro time frame. Like, if you really, really zoom out, like, they, they basically invented fake money. They're like, we were doing gold for a little bit. It was fun. But every central bank, like, the mean reversion for central banks is them all failing, right? The mean reversion for every stock market going back to the East India trading company, whatever, is every stock market goes to zero. Every society goes to zero. Every central bank collapse. All the fiat's go to zero, right? Like, we all know where this is heading. But people continuously shill this Twitter narrative of buy the dip, we're mean reverting, the Fed is gonna switch back, we can't break this, you know, like, I'm not gonna attack Rao Powell too hard here, but how many times does he tweet out, oh, this is the chart of truth, this is the permanent downtrend in bond? Well, there was a, there was a uptrend before that, right? Like, that's not the only trend, it's not like a multi-thousand year trend, it's, it's only an 80 year trend. You really, really need to zoom out here, and at least get comfortable with the idea that things change you know and then someone say oh don't ever say this time is different okay well my this time is different is the last 1000 years so get ready to everyone be a farmer again right like you can take that wherever you want so i just think people are cherry picking time frames
3: i do i do agree like you know like just looking at the past and like saying that's the future is going to be that's kind of wrong thing to do like you sort of think through like it's kind of cliche to say this now but like think through first principles so like from my perspective like a big driver of a lot of this stuff you know it's really just been technology right we've built up this huge scale of let's say infrastructure like you know kind of we had the whole industrial revolution etc uh and now we've kind of got the whole internet right so like, we really don't know what that looks like you know like the, having the coordination at scale you know kind of like be able to like spread the value and everything around i know it's sort of deflationary to your point like um but like do you not think like maybe like sort of that be able to communicate at scale and that sort of coordination layer like you take even blockchain out of it um like, what kind of aspects do you think that plays into this? Like, do you think there's much? Like, we're obviously not going to go back to farming, right? So, like, you know, I think there is, you know, there there's an aspect in which technology plays, in which like, you know, like everyone's on Twitter, et cetera, of uh, kind of almost like whether it's kind of putting a floor onto it, right? We're not going to go farm, right? So, like, where do you think? Where do you draw the line of like how bearish you can get on this situation? Yeah.
2: So I I think like. Two, two, two quotes or like lines of thought that I think help you flip that on its head. Uh, I was watching like a, a long time ago an, an Elon Musk interview where he was talking about like why the obsession with space, why the obsession taking us back to space. And he said, you know, if you look at the pyramids, like that, the, the pyramids is like the peak of the Egyptian society as far as like manufacturing, construction, output, right? They They haven't topped that moment, right? And like the pyramids are, putting heavy bricks on top of other heavy bricks, right? Like that knowledge is very known. So it's not a big secret how to make that happen. And it's only become easier and easier to make that happen. But it, but it hasn't happened. Right. So like, our going to the moon, right? Like we know how to do it. We don't do it. Right. Or like I could Google how to, you know, clean uranium and and make a, most people are like, a couple Googles away from having a basic understanding of nuclear weapons, but they haven't proliferated everywhere, right? Like, all I'm saying is there's a lot of knowledge out there that isn't acted upon. So I think people give too much credit to just the information availability on mass. And then the second thought is, is technology the input of these efficiencies that create the, the, like, um, the disinflation and all the capital and all of that kind of stuff? Or is technology the output, right? Like, all of these things had to go right to get to technology, right? Like, farmers had to become scientists. But there's not food in the shelves in, in Sri Lanka right now, it doesn't look like. There's not farming happening in Ukraine right now, it doesn't happen, right? So are, are those scientists, are they going to keep doing science with empty bellies? Or, are, you know, your argument, are, you, you just said, like, oh, we're not going to go become farmers. Uh, dude, I'm pretty sure if there's a food shortage, a lot of people are going to switch back to farming, right? Like, that's kind of the trend. So I, I, I think current trends go the other way. I, I Again, like, I'm not saying all this happens, but I'm really just trying to, like, unlock the mental barriers that stop us from thinking these things are happening. If you zoom out past the last 80 years, these things have happened multiple times over the human history. Like, don't cherry-pick mean reversions. Don't think that, like, Twitter or Google is, is going to stop all of these problems.
0: Okay. So, so if we, just to summarize, Mike, if we forget about mean reversion, forget, forget about broken supply chains, labor scarcity, potential famine, uh, no raw materials, generationally high inflation, earnings recession, the plague that's still going on, and a legit war, this summer could be pretty bullish.
2: Yeah, That's I mean, crazy. I just went on such a bearish rant that I'm sure we
0: absolutely just touched
2: macro bottom, but who knows.
0: So with that in mind, let's pivot to a little more optimism to close out the call here. So Chase wrote an awesome piece on uh, cross-chain messaging, hitting on a few of the, uh, the newer protocols and discussing um, you know, how to communicate between, uh, between different bridges here. So Chase, why don't I kick it over to you and you can give the, the TLDR.
4: What's going on? absolutely yeah appreciate everyone for for sticking around through mike's mike's macro rants um it's always a pleasure to have them out in public <laughs> um but yes as as tom mentioned i just put out a piece earlier this week um that is on generalized cross-chain messaging and i originally started looking into um uh, this group of protocols because you know the, the whole idea of like these bridges and stuff, wrapping tokens, sending them to other places. Most of the time, these uh, assets are just getting locked in a giant like honeypot by weak um, trust assumptions. Uh, Off chain, you know, I don't know. It it just didn't really seem like that was the the final solution, um, and you know, more so like a patchwork solution in order to get people into these other ecosystems, enjoy liquidity mining. And whatever that they're offering. So I really wanted to look into, you know, like, what is the core problem um, that these protocols deal with? And what are they trying to solve for? And ultimately, like, how do they address this problem? And so really, what I came away thinking was, um, you know, the the main problem here is uh, the same thing as, as the Oracle problem uh, that is present with trying to get uh, off-chain data, um, real-world information into the context of a public You know, these systems are designed so that they natively uh, only trust information that they themselves can verify. Um, And so obviously the just other chains and their data fall into this camp. Um, Now, however, uh, because these are on chain uh, on on a different chain, they can theoretically these messages can theoretically be proven. Um, that they did happen. It's a little bit different than transporting uh, information from the real world on chain. Uh, but so I, I came away looking at this stuff um, as just one huge stepwise innovation for the multi-chain landscape. And I think this is mostly due to the fact that there, um, once we solve generalized messaging in a multi-chain context, we are going to be able to Flip, kind of how our multi-chain operating system works. And uh, Doug, I if you want to throw up that tweet from Mister Postman, I don't know how I came across this, but um, this is ultimately um, kind of what my my thoughts have been behind this thesis for some time now. But I didn't really know how to put it into words, until I came across this this random tweet. Um, but Post has written a lot of stuff on on uh, kind of multi-chain. Um, and interoperability and learned a lot from him. But I uh, just wanted to give him, him a shout out for this because he he frames it as bringing the asset to the computation as in kind of like what our old bridging approaches were. And now we're g- going to be able to pivot to bringing computation to the asset. So what does that mean? It means importing a specific set of code and information to run on top of assets that are you know, native to a specific chain, if you really think about, you know, why would you want to move ETH over to Solana? uh, The only reason I can think of is to use it as collateral and get leverage. Uh, You're not going to be staking your ETH directly into Solana, you know, only Solana or the sole tokens are going to be able to provide security for that network. And you're also not going to be able to use ETH to pay for block space. Um, So it just makes more sense to keep these assets on their home base and ultimately will reduce the fragmentation of liquidity. Um, We'll have, you know, I think better overall security. And ultimately we can start creating these uh, multi-chain composable applications Um, and, you know, really allowing developers to go back to, what they really excel at and you know that's not that is not worrying about how the underlying uh, infrastructure is working all the time and trying to uh, jam a bunch of uh, round pegs into square holes uh, it's it's being able to build just really cool apps for the end user and ultimately to me that's what the the generalized cross-chain messaging is all about Curious to hear if anyone else up here has um, some takeaways from the report or um, any strong opinions on cross-chain
3: messaging versus um, the old bridging approach. Maybe just give me some like uh, sort of examples of how you see this playing out, right? So we've got like, you know, sort of the Cosmos system where IBC, like we've kind of got these app chains Specific, you know, things in you got cross chain messaging, all this sort of stuff, uh, interchain accounts, uh, and versus like kind of the Ethereum esque you know, rollup centric future. Like, what is what does the cross chain messaging look like between kind of that rollup centric future versus you know the sort of app chain uh, model? Yeah, I, I think that's a
4: great question, and uh, you know, it ultimately comes down to uh, which way do we think that. Um, like these blockchains actually scale? Is it vertically or is it horizontally? Um, I think it's probably a bit of both. And you know, at the heart of either one is going to be these um, generalized cross-chain messaging systems. You know, these different uh, L2s on Ethereum are going to need to talk to each other. Uh, The the different Cosmos app chains, you know, can talk through through IBC. Uh, There's various implementations that either route can go. But Uh, I I think from crypto's history, what we've seen is this is not going to be a simple winner takes all. There will probably be at least like two or three dominant platforms. And um, as long as that continues to be the case, you know, there's going to be a need to communicate all across these three, these three, uh, two or three really big protocols. Uh, So as long as that continues to be the case, I don't know if like the technicals between Like, how how do roll-ups communicate um, specifically to each other versus a Cosmos app chain will play that big of a deal? Um, In my mind, it's more so connecting all of them into, like, one giant async system. Where do you think... Oh, go ahead, Tom.
0: No, I was just going to say, Chase, out of sort of your review of the different um, options on the table today, is there one that you came away with more... um, positive in terms of uh you know where you think the future will be
4: versus the other options yeah i think um the way i kind of highlighted it at the end of my report is they all serve a pretty uh unique use case and to me the one that stood out that just kind of had that the most obvious fit was axlr uh, because it, it's pretty much designed to be the widest compatibility um, solution and you know ultimately I, I think that like i just said we need to have something that can connect all of these chains however um the way it's designed to be kind of like the hub in a hub and spoke model makes it just structurally a centralized point of failure if it were to embed itself as kind of like the ultimate cross-chain solution um should anyone take over the network uh that's bad news bears because it's essentially a read and write oracle that can um attack like any chain it's connected to um i do really like some of the other solutions um for this exact reason uh, like nomad because they have a latency period built into um, kind of their optimistic design it's about 30 minutes that uh people have to wait for a message to actually be processed because um They have to wait through a challenge period um, with fraud proofs and essentially what this will allow for is kind of like a way to mitigate like risk contagion if you know someone or if we see an exploit somewhere and you know that you need to um, make sure that activity is stopped coming through the system like you can socially coordinate and do that now that doesn't necessarily Compromise the end user experience that you know people aren't going to want to wait thirty minutes for uh, like a bridge transfer. There are things like Connects building on top of that um, that will expedite uh, the the bridge process for people and take on the risk uh, that comes with you know that potential transaction being blocked or or being fraudulent um, for a small fee. Uh, Then just rounding out um, the. The other ones, uh, I thought layer zero and Chainlink kind of solved for the same problem in that these protocols are mostly all already making trust assumptions or these applications, I should say are making trust assumptions for which oracles they want to choose to use for um, external data imports. And as I said before, like this is a subset of the Oracle problem. You know, you can just uh, double down on that trust that you have for your Oracle provider um, but again, you know, you're increasing your, uh, you're concentrating your risk there. So I think you know they all have they all have pros and cons and trade offs like everything in the space. There's no silver bullet. Um, definitely take a read through the full report if you, if you want um, all the nuanced details. But I'd say that's my general summary of it. Where do you think value
2: accrues there? Right, like if you have in a very simple framework a couple of chains with assets of, of some value and you've got one or two or a handful of computation chains and the way you described it, right, we flip this whole bridging narrative and it's communication, right? You've got like stuff that brings the computation to the asset. Between all of those parties, just a share of the value, is, is everybody taking some fractional revenue there, does some of these land as like a, like a
4: public good? Like, like where do you think value accrues as, as that system grows? Um I think it could go a bunch of different ways. Um, like the space is so early. so many of these protocols like barely have public documents on for developers to know how to build on them. So anything that I say here is, is just going to be complete uh, speculation, best guess. I do think uh, it's going to be largely dependent on for each individual protocol, how their token economics are structured. For example, axelar Um, They need to, every validator in the system needs to bond AXL tokens for the security of the network. Um, So as more value on the chain is secured, um, more economic activities coming through it, you'd think that uh, value would accrue to the AXL token. Now, with layer zero, I don't really know why that would need a token with the way it's currently designed. Um, Right now, they don't have a token, and it's more difficult to see how something like that, where it's completely up to the developers to choose trust assumptions on a per transaction basis, where value would really accrue there. Um, So I I wish I had a more concrete take on where within the whole uh, stack of like L1s, L2s, interoperability, the value actually accrue to. Um, But I, I think we're just way too early. To bring it full circle, we
0: had a lot of uh, hacks in the beginning of crypto's life um, with exchanges. And then that basically stopped as the space matured and we got a few years in. And base, FTX, Binance, and others sort of cleaned everyone's act up. So maybe it'll be the same path with, uh, with Bridges moving forward.
1: That's going to close us out this week. Um, thank you to the gentleman who joined us today giving us a little bit of hopium, mixing in um, (laughs) a little bit of bear case as well to keep us us on our toes. Uh, Join us on the 20th, should be 4 to 5 p.m. Eastern as normal, and we'll catch you then.